Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sometimes this business, the funding, is almost a pyramid kind of scheme. Welcome to episode 17 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails. What led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies. I am your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at Luckin' Coffee. In January of 2020, famed short-seller research firm Muddy Waters received an anonymous tip. In it, the team of analysts found an 89-page report on the beloved and revered Luckin Coffee, known to some as the Starbucks of China. It was titled Fraud and Fundamentally Broken Business, as the research presented a veritable pile of smoking guns. 25,843 customer receipts and 11,260 hours of store traffic that had been recorded by cameras in stores. What they had been staring at was evidence that Luckin had a fatally flawed business plan, one that provided fake sales numbers and defrauded the very same investors who were responsible for the stock's explosive 160% growth just two months after its IPO. The report continued to expose details of just how Luckin blatantly overstated its coffee sales and paid out expenses to fake accounts. There was an abundance of evidence of secret misdealings and business arrangements involving its chairman and bank accounts that traced back to his family members and close circle of friends. This expose stunned even the most seasoned analysts, including Carson Brock, one of Muddy Water's most veteran experts, who was already well-known for publishing reports and outing companies. But this was more than just a simple case of business cooking the books. This was a full-on shakedown. He and his team devoured every page of the report, and after what seemed like hours upon hours of deliberation, posted it on Twitter for the whole world to see. Welcome to the story of Luck and Coffee, deliciously brewed in 2017, grinded to the ground by 2020. I was excited to dig into Luck and Coffee because I have my own share of stories from doing business in China for so many years. 
Back in the early 2000s, I began advising Chinese companies on Wall Street and found myself frequently playing the role of intermediary between U.S. investors and their insatiable thirst for the China boom. The potential offered by the Chinese market was intoxicating to even the most risk-averse investors. Chinese companies were bursting on the scene with alluring business models, which, when combined with the sheer size of China's population, presented a monstrous opportunity and rapid scalability. During my career, I represented close to 50 Chinese-listed companies and traveled to China more times than I can remember. It involved everything from eight-hour-long meetings confined in nicotine-choked offices to extravagant banquets with dishes like turtle soup, lotus roots, preserved duck. Of course, there was also plenty of baijiu, the national drink of China. And just so you know, declining the offer of alcohol from your hosts would constitute a major breach of etiquette, which of course inevitably led to rounds and rounds of shots. And just as it seemed that you could no longer see straight, you'd be right back in the boardroom again, resuming discussions, but this time completely hammered. (laughs) All of that changed in 2010, 2011, when a series of accounting scandals came out that plagued Wall Street and tainted all Chinese companies. We're talking unreliable audits, absolutely no financial oversight, inaccurate disclosures, and jokes about companies having three different sets of financials. One to fool investors, one for its auditors, and then the real one. For years after that, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone who would touch, let alone look, at a Chinese stock. So when I heard about the aftermath of luck and coffee almost a decade after the first wave of China stock scandals, I was obviously intrigued. And after I heard the story, I was more than a little perplexed at how it could have happened. As that old saying goes, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Luckin Coffee emerged on the scene in 2018 when it opened its first store in Beijing. Luckin, or Reixin, which in Chinese means happiness and luck, very soon became a poster child for a Wall Street darling. It was heated as the Starbucks of China, and it grew out of nowhere explosively. Here's Stephen White, professor of innovation in entrepreneurship and strategy at Xinhua University. When I first come across Luckin, it's one of those things faster than normal, but it just kind of popped up. It must have been 2018, 19 or so, where I first started seeing this deer with a blue background in elevators, you know, billboards. It was a pretty massive marketing campaign. I don't remember exactly when that was. But besides the ad campaign that was, you know, being everywhere, I guess I started noticing people with the cups. Then you see here and there in offices, buildings, and you see the little kiosks, you know, where they would have the basically takeout. I, I don't remember actually seeing any of the places to sit. I just saw those little hole in the walls where the coffee was being picked up either by some of the customers, I guess, or some of the delivery people. Luckin achieved unicorn status within a year, and tons and tons of money from the VC world was being poured in. With approximately 200 million by Singapore's sovereign wealth fund GIC, 
another $200 million by select investors that were dying to get a piece of the action, and by April of 2019, BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, threw their hat in the ring to the tune of a $3 billion valuation on the company. And so while the VC world was going bananas for this, Luckin proved that they were more than just a pretty face. They were rather innovative, too. They inked a deal with Tencent, China's tech giant, to tap into WeChat users, which was their version of Twitter, to advance groundbreaking features like facial recognition and other customizations to boost its user interface. It was clever. It was groundbreaking and one that further fueled excitement about the company. So now let's compare this to Starbucks, which initially served as the marker, a precept to the coffee business in China. Starbucks opened its first door in Beijing in 1999, and within the past 21 years has grown to 3,700 locations across China. But in the short amount of time, Luckin made it clear that there was a new kid on the block, one that wasn't interested in being friends. One of the first things that made Luckin's business model so ingenious was that they built their brand around smartphones from the start. While Starbucks had to build an app after the fact, Luckin hit the ground running. They made sure to provide a seamless brand experience, facilitating cashless transactions with the use of their app. Here's Mac Yuan who is an associate professor at the NUS Business School, National University of Singapore. I think it became a success. It's kind of like the WeWork of the coffee business. Kind of in the same way that WeWork kind of became relatively successful fairly quickly. Like WeWork, there were already other companies kind of leasing workspaces and so on. But uh, WeWork just offered something different. And in that sense, Luckin Coffee was doing that. And it was integrating technology into the business a lot where people can just order through an app and pick it up. So I think that's what kind of made it a success. Luckin created a brand around connectivity, capitalizing on the younger demographic and those who needed coffee on the go. They were able to do it all for cheap because its whole operations were done through cloud kitchens, made for delivery, little hole in the walls with no seating, and low operating costs. The way the company pitched it, these cost savings led to higher profit margins. Instead of a coffee company, Luckin was pitched as a tech company that provided coffee. That premise drove investors wild. Who doesn't like fast and cheap? Well, I'm referring to coffee here. And the second compelling selling point was that Luckin knew its demographic well and just how they wanted their coffee. Chinese consumers can be quite price sensitive and Luckin knew how to capitalize on that by using a very aggressive marketing campaign on their app that promoted constant discounts. These offers were sometimes so steep that it left many scratching their heads as to how the company even made money. Compared to Starbucks four or $5 lattes, consumers using promos would be paying for $1.67 for a cup of joe. While most American coffee shops will give you a free drink every 10 drinks or so, Luckin once offered a jaw-dropping buy five, get five free deal. 
And there was even another perk. Because if you didn't get your coffee within 30 minutes, your next drink was, you guessed it, free. The company also understood the power of offline marketing and promoted a line of celebrity brand ambassadors on billboards to tout the superiority of its brand and the quality of its coffee. Luckin boasted that it gathered Arabica coffee beans from Latin America and Africa, syrup from Italy, and milk from New Zealand. So their coffee wasn't just cheap, it was delicious. With these pillars backing it, Luckin vowed it would overtake Starbucks as China's biggest coffee chain. Sure enough, Luckin's 4,500 stores surpassed Starbucks' 4,100 stores by December of 2019. Luckin's co-founder and CEO, Jenny Xian, declared at an industry conference that her next goal would be to have 10,000 stores by 2021. The company had already IPO'd in May of 2019, where it saw shares of $17 at the opening day soar to $25 per share, and its chairman, Charles Liu, beaming with pride. Luckin was, at that time, one of the few successful Chinese Wall Street debuts of 2019. By January of 2020, Luckin was back on the market shopping for investors and raised an additional $865 million to fuel expansion to grow at the blinding pace that its CEO had vowed to achieve. There were many reasons to celebrate because the company had literally doubled its valuation to now $12 billion just eight months after its IPO. After only being public for about six months, the company had just raised another round of serious money to go even bigger. But then, the unimaginable happened. Less than a month after the money was raised, that 89-page report was sent to Muddy Waters Research, who after reviewing the material announced that they were going to short the stock. By definition, shorting a stock means you believe the share price is not worth the value and speculate that it will drop. When you short the stock, you're essentially borrowing a stock and selling it at a higher price. And then when it drops, you buy it back to replace it, making money on the difference in price. It's a very lucrative strategy if you know how to play the markets, but it's certainly not for the faint of heart or inexperienced. In this case, the stock plunged 80% once the report became public knowledge. And how could it not? The research was so thorough and meticulously laid out that it was next to impossible to simply brush it off. By the way, I encourage you to look through it as I will post this in the show notes after the episode. In the report, what was uncovered were layers upon layers of deceit. 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The first and ultimately most damning accusation was Luckin fabricating its sales through dishonest accounting practices. This, of course, was discovered through the deployment of 92 full-time and 1,418 part-time staff on the ground running surveillance for almost a thousand days. This was a staggering scale of deception orchestrated by Luckin's executives that included creating fake vouchers to be purchased by fake companies to boost sales and growth metrics. Someone had done a lot of detective work, and you do this by watching stores. You go to these actual business locations, and you just watch, and you try to get kind of see if there's a connection between what the numbers say and what you see on the ground, so to speak. And I, so someone had done that work for Luckin, and I guess later on the report, talk about how numbers seem to be fabricated. The orders, you know, rather than having you know, in order, like I buy a coffee, you buy a coffee, that's I'm number one, you're number two, then number three, number four. They were skipping some of the numbers. So the numbers at the end of the day were a lot higher than the actual number of sales that had been made at that particular location. Apparently that was done somewhat systematically. And so that's how, you know, I think the main charge of fraud was for overstating revenues. Also detailed in the report were sales of large corporate accounts that placed sizable orders that accounted for hundreds of millions of dollars. Suspiciously, these accounts all somehow tied back to relatives or friends of co-founder Chairman Charles Liu. In 2019, these orders accounted for $210 million in corporate sales. There were also large corporate expenditures that would generally be expected for such a large enterprise, but internal documents showed that one employee by the name of Lin Liang purchased more than $149 million in raw materials like juice, delivery services, and human resource expenses. However, it turned out that Lin was a made-up person, and the only people who signed off on this fictitious request were none other than the CEO, Jenny, and the COO, Jian Liu. And if that wasn't enough, in the report, the anonymous writer also questioned why management began cashing out 49% of its stock upon the IPO, especially as they were just beginning to expand. It also laid out a diagram of just how Chairman Charles was transferring millions of dollars, siphoning cash from the company. The core implication from the report was clear. 
Luckin had an inherently flawed and crooked business model from the start. China is mostly made out of tea drinkers. But of course, uh, if we look at the younger generation, I think there are more who are moving to drinking coffee. Partly is, of course, uh, the wider exposure to the world and that shift taste. But, you know, those kind of shifts, in order to change in a big way, may take a generation. You know, I think what Luckin Coffee was really trying to do is to do something that probably takes a long time. If you're really talking about a business model that relies on just many, many stores and selling relatively cheap coffee, you're talking about massive scale, selling by volume. I'm not sure that China at this point, the market is for coffee drinking is big enough for that. The writer also took a deep dive into the rest of the management team, a director of the company that had a history of sitting on some very questionable Chinese companies and a chief marketing officer who had just spent 18 months in jail previously at another company, which now coincidentally is doing business with Luckin. Ultimately, Luckin fired its co-founder and CEO and its COO before ousting its chairman in July of 2020. Its shares were suspended on June 30th, and investigators confirmed that $300 million in revenue and $190 million in cost expenses were all fabricated the year prior. To say Luckin imploded would be putting it mildly. Its stock declined 95%, falling from $40 per share in March to $2 per share in August of 2020. Board members have left, executives have been fired, and the stock delisted. Even in the final days when the board claimed that it wasn't aware of any of the red flags, one has to wonder, what were the directors doing? After all, how effective was the board governance if everything in that report came as a surprise? This blind faith or complete trust in the management team seemingly goes against the whole principle of board governance. And over the years, we've seen so many cases of companies waving red flags where to the outside world was so apparent, but yet the board failed to take action. Here's Professor Mac Yuan-Tin again. Luckin Coffee is similar to many other companies that have run into problems. If you think about WeWork, if you think about Terranos, okay, these companies, you see very intelligent people, very knowledgeable investors kind of getting involved, not doing their proper due diligence. And sometimes this is what happens. You have this window dressing. You know, the company gets in the right people to be, say, their initial investors. And then, of course, these initial investors may then say, well, let's bring in more investors. And we will just take a bit more in the second round of funding and we bring in more investors. The second round investor will look at those people in the first round and say, oh, there are credible people involved. It must be good. So nobody, after a while, people stop kind of asking the question in terms of, does it make sense just because you have a credible investor or you have prominent board members been involved, does it necessarily mean it's a good company? No, and in a way, sometimes this kind of business, the funding, is kind of like almost a pyramid kind of scheme. The initial investor kind of comes in, take a stake. Of course, then 
in the second round wants to boost up the valuation, you no, know, and then take a small stake, and then of course then pays maybe a lot for that second stake, but of course already paid a much lower price for the first stake. Everybody then looks at that and say, "Wow, this company is worth so much," and then others jump in. So I think this kind of just go on. So many of these companies which are kind of going public and so on, and and in initial funding rounds, they do that. I think investors have to be very careful. And as as I always say that, especially if they start window dressing their boards with well known investors, prominent board members, people with titles, people who have. What appear to be strong credentials, sometimes you have to be even more careful. That lack of oversight, combined with the intense desire of VC investors to be part of the next big thing, the entanglements of big demigod status, dominant personalities, a precarious group think, that leads to what Professor Stephen White refers to as FOMO, fear of missing out. Back in the you know 2008 2009, there was supposedly should have learned that lesson. Have to be whether investors or regulators, you know, in the U.S. or you know, in China for that matter, have a lot more scrutiny over over these. As investors, if it's too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. You know, but that fear of missing out is extremely strong, and it's extremely strong not just among the retail investors, but I think. What founders like Lou, you know, a serial entrepreneur who is very in tune with VC firms in, in China, outside of China, you know, whether the U.S. Singapore investment uh, VC firm was an early investor, they are incredibly scared of missing out on the next big thing, the next huge unicorn. I think this this thing of hasn't abated much even with COVID. This thing of chasing the next unicorn or the potential unicorn um, is extremely strong. To the extent that I've heard this phenomena is part of, one person told, described it as, now the company itself is the product that's being produced and sold. It's being built up, you have a business model, execution takes place, investors are attracted to it. Often it's a consumer-facing business, so you get big numbers and you can get them very quickly, especially here in China. The ramp-up can be extremely fast. and. That's like catnip to the VCs. You know, that's just blood to sharks. Maybe that's a better analogy. That they see that and they got to get a piece of that. So back to that old adage: "Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me." In the investment world, oftentimes, lust becomes the dominant emotion, frequently trumping sensibility. We learned about the rash of accounting scandals with Chinese stocks less than a decade ago, but investors still decided to throw their money at Luckin without the proper due diligence. To be clear, this isn't exclusive to Chinese companies, because between Theranos and WeWork, there are plenty of American companies that woo investors with lofty promises and shaky fundamentals. It seems that these events continue to happen, like in this case, a deja vu. So, I'd like to end with a thought-provoking question: Why did the Luckin investor call the police? Because they realize. That they just got mugged.
Special thanks to Professor Stephen White and Professor Mac Yuanting for their contributions to this episode and discussing their valuable insights on Luckin Coffee. And thank you for tuning in to this week's The Great Fail. Please make sure to visit our website at thegreatfail.com for behind-the-scene audio and video footage. If you like these episodes and want us to continue bringing you more, please subscribe to our newsletter because, well, not connecting with you would be our great fail. While you're at it, simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of them would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Lastly, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Great Fail Pod. And please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on iTunes to show your support. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And remember, folks, with great failure comes great liability. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.